Well, Sam Shoemaker, who was an Episcopal priest and also a co-founder of AA, wrote the following words in the 1950s that I believe resound especially today. He said this, he said, I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through through which men walk when they find God. There is no use my going inside and staying there when so many are still outside. And they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that many ever find is only the wall where the door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched hands, groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stand by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world, he goes on to write, is for men to find that door, the door to God. The most important thing that any man can do is to take hold of one of those blind, groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks and opens to man's own touch. And that, you guys, is the tremendous responsibility that we have today. And over the last few weeks in this series, we've talked about doors. We've talked about choices. We've talked about God's direction for us. But we also need to become acutely aware of the doors that God is wanting us to open and wanting us to invite others to find. And that's the conversation that we want to have over the next few moments today. We are so glad that you are here this morning at the crossing. It is fall because it was dark when I got up today. And so that means that fall is here and pumpkin spice lattes are in full bloom. And we want to especially welcome those of you right now who are at our southeast campus um, or watching this or you're at one of our microsites or you're watching online today. Uh, There we go. We're so glad that you are here today. And before we jump in deeper, I wanted to let you know that in light of the recent tragedy of 1 October that we've experienced here in our city, um, we are going to be shifting our series that was supposed to kick off here in a couple weeks. As we continue to wrestle with the aftermath and the effects and, and still trying to figure out what all of this means, we know that God has much to say to us about where we are, how do we process this, and how can we not only heal ourselves, but also continue to help our city heal. And so beginning on November 5th, we're going to be doing a series that we've titled Hope Rising. And this series will focus in the book of Nehemiah. And we feel like this is an excellent opportunity for you. And we have invite cards already available today as you exit for you to invite friends and family and neighbors who are probably wrestling with a lot of these same issues in the aftermath to be a part of this series and maybe open to what God wants to do in them. And so make sure you take note. It begins on November the 5th. Well, I've heard that confession is good for the soul. So I want you to raise your hand this morning if this is true of you. How many of you, between the time that you could walk and you got your driver's license, how many of you ran away from home at least one time? Whoa. Wow, a bunch of runners here in the room this morning. It's a common thing. I mean, if we had time to share all of the stories of those hands that was raised, they're always sort of the same theme, and they're kind of funny now in hindsight. They probably had something to do with one or both of your parents being unreasonable at that moment. And the interesting thing about running away from home as a kid is it's all about away and not much about two. 
It's always about running away, never about to. As a seven-year-old, I remember the day that I was sent to my room for some reason by my mom, and I slammed the door, and I determined that I was going to run away, and I even announced it loudly. I'm running away from inside the confines of my room. I packed up some of my most important things, opened the window of my room, and hopped out onto the front lawn. It was the middle of the afternoon on a Saturday, so I wasn't that intimidated. And I marched to the end of the driveway defiantly and triumphantly. And I remember getting to the end of the driveway and pausing because I was away, but I wasn't really sure where I was supposed to now go to. I ended up at a nearby 7-Eleven playing pinball until the quarters ran out and I headed back home. And I remember knocking on the front door and my mom opened it and said, where have you been? And I let her know I had run away. She didn't even realize I was gone. (laughs) Too often our instinct is to run when we don't like what we are experiencing or what we are seeing or the feedback that we're, we're getting. So let's confess one more thing. When it comes to doors, we love it when God opens the doors that we are hoping for. We love it when God does something. We stand up and we talk about that. I was praying for this, and God opened that door. We love those stories. We're not as excited when God shows us doors that we weren't expecting or that we really would rather avoid. Shane talked last week about three doors that we needed to step through in light of the tragedy that we have experienced as a community. He talked about these three things. He said we need to be stepping towards each other. We need to be stepping towards our community, and we need to be stepping towards our God. And when we first heard that a week ago, maybe for a lot of us, we nodded in agreement, and we were like, man, yes, we need to do that. But then another instinct may take over, that instinct that says, I don't know if I'm up for that. Maybe I would rather run away from that. Maybe I would rather not step towards that door that God seems to be opening. It may be overwhelming. Everybody's a runner. Now, some of us get medals for it. But all of us run. And the Bible tells us about a guy that you've heard the story of many times named Jonah, who was an incredible runner, especially when it comes to running from God. He is one of the most famous runners of all time. And when I say the name Jonah, you automatically clicked in, right? You automatically thought whale, fish, flannel graph, Sunday school. And and that's the part you know about his life. But this actually, over the next few moments, we're going to discover isn't a fish story. Even if you have a hard time believing the part about Jonah spending a few days inside a whale that he was swallowed by, that's okay. Because this story is actually about running. And this story is actually my story, and it's most likely your story. So even if you have a hard time swallowing this tale, I want you to stay engaged for a few moments. Because it is a part of history. A big part of this story is a city called Nineveh, which actually existed in Assyria about 750 B.C., before Christ. If it was Narnia, we might think this story isn't true. But it's not Narnia. It's Nineveh. And... It's Nineveh, and we know that Jonah was actually a real person because even Jesus referred to him. We read about him in the New Testament. And Jonah was a prophet. 
And Jonah had a very tough job. These prophets were guys that were sent into difficult environments at difficult times to deal with difficult situations. They were often asked to step through doors no one else wanted to walk through. And Jonah had an even more difficult call. Because he wasn't even called to be a prophet to the people of Israel who had some concept of God, who had at least some small inkling that there was a God and what God wanted to do. But God sends Jonah to Assyria and specifically to the city of Nineveh where their view of the world is really perverted and messed up. They had a reputation for being the roughest city, the, sinful, the most sinful city that you could ever find. Anyone relate? And God wants to sin and give them a warning. And he also wants to call even those people in that city back to him. So beginning in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And he said, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah, read it with me, ran away. Jonah ran away. God said, I'm going to open this door. And Jonah ran away from the Lord. It doesn't say he ran away from Nineveh. It says he ran away from whom? The Lord. And he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to do what? Flee from the Lord. You know, when we run from God, we run to the strangest of places, don't we? We run to the strangest of places. That's part of our story sometimes, too. God says, I want you to go through this door. I want you to go in that direction. I want you to participate with me in this way. And you say, not so much. So Jonah really ran from God, all right? Because in this map, it actually shows where he was. So he's in his hometown. He goes to Joppa. So Joppa is 550 miles from Nineveh. By foot, all right? So he's 550 miles away, which is a long way away in those days, right? It's not a quick flight on Southwest. And then, because he wants to get far away, he, he pays a fare. He gets on a boat, and he, go, and he heads all the way to Tarshish, which is 2,500 miles from where he was. He goes to Spain, Right? He literally goes as far as you can go in that period of time. This city over here was about as far as they knew you could even go. That's where Jonah wanted to go. That was the end of the world from his perspective. When we run from God, we run, just, we run to the strangest of places, and we run in the strangest of ways because Jonah gets on a boat. It's as if he thought somehow if he got on the boat, God would not see him. God would not find him, right? He's running from God who created the earth and the sky and the sea. And he decides to get in a boat. A boat is going to be at sea for the longest possible time in that period of time that you could be out on the water. Makes no sense at all. We do those things too, don't we? We run from God. Some of you could talk about stories in your own life in the strangest of ways that don't make sense. We make decisions and choices and plans. And that's what Jonah did. God says to Jonah, could you, would you go to preach? Could you, would you go to reach the people in Assyria for you fit my criteria? And Jonah says, as Dr. Seuss would, I would not go there in a boat. I would not go there in a float. I would not go there in a gale. I would not go there in a whale. 
I do not like the people there, and if I died, I would not care. I would not go to that great town. I'd rather choke. I'd rather drown. I will not go by land or sea, so stop this talk and let me be. And so Jonah gets on a boat, and he heads to Tarshish. But God often goes to great length to get us moving toward his plan, not away from it. And so in verse 4, we see these words. Then the Lord. Okay, so Jonah thinks he's doing his thing, gets on the boat, I'm gone. But God is not done. Because he says, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Now, if you're a sailor in those days, you've seen a lot of storms. But the fact that these sailors were panicking is not a good sign. Because this means it's like nothing they've ever seen before, and they're lightening the ship. But Jonah, all this is happening... Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. God's not going to give up on Jonah that easily. But when we run, we're often the last to see it. I mean, all this is happening. All this chaos is going on above deck. And Jonah is comfortable down in his bunk sleeping. God is pursuing. Jonah is sleeping. God has this picture, but it's a bunch of seemingly unconnected dots that he's trying to connect. And sometimes for you and I, when we run from God, that connection between things that are happening as we're on the run, we are the last to see it. Some of you have had conversations at Starbucks or a coffee shop with somebody, and immediately you go, you're running. And they begin to tell you about their life and the decisions they're making, and all you're thinking is they're not connecting the dots at all. Right? God's trying to get their attention. God's trying to do this, and they are oblivious. They are asleep like Jonah, down in the belly of the boat while chaos is happening above ground. And the sailors, they start having a prayer meeting. They start to pray, and they're praying to any God that they can think of. They're just praying, which again tells you that's not a good sign. They're in deep trouble. Jonah finally wakes up, and he joins the prayer meeting, but that doesn't work. And so they cast lots, right? It's what they used to do back then, you know, they draw straws. They cast lots to somehow try to identify what might be causing this, because in their way of thinking, they're trying to figure out this has got to be happening for a reason. And the lot falls on Jonah. The lot falls on Jonah. And in verse 9, it says this. He answers, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea, <laughs> hello, who made the sea that's now raging around us, and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked the question, what have you done? In parentheses, they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. I'm running from God. Let's go. What should we do? The sailors don't know what to do. Jonah's been very honest with them. And he tells them, throw me off the boat. They hesitate. Then they pray for forgiveness. And then they toss Jonah into the water. It says in verse 15, they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. I don't know what your picture is of that, but I like to think of it as like this raging thing, like if you were to throw a rock into a raging river, and that moment where the rock hits the water, and all of a sudden it just goes flat. I, I think it had to happen that way, right? Jonah hits the water, and it's just it's calm, right? But then I was thinking this week as I was reading this story again, and, and the story just keeps moving, but I'm thinking, Jonah's got to be out there going, hey, guys, 
It's good now. It's good, right? And they're sitting, oh, should we pick him up? Do we put him back in the boat? Nah, right? Verse 17, now the Lord, remember what we read a few moments ago, then the Lord, then the Lord. This says, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and for three nights. Again, Jonah's running. God said, go through this door to Nineveh. Jonah said, no, thank you. He begins to run as far as he can possibly run. He's thinking God has moved on to somebody else, but God is persistent. And so not only does God pursue him with a raging storm, but when it calms down, he sends a fish, large fish. He swallows him. I don't know the details. I don't understand it. Ask me later or someone smarter. But he's in the belly of this fish. And even then, God does not abandon Jonah. And so in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says that from From inside the fish, Jonah prayed. From inside the fish, Jonah finally turns and he prays to the Lord his God. I bet he did. Remember, this is not a story about a whale. It's a story about running. It's a story about following God through a door that opens in the midst of terrible or intimidating situations. As much as we may hate those doors like Nineveh that God may open to us, as much as it may frighten us, this is a story about walking through those doors anyway. Because God had not abandoned Jonah, and he will not abandon us, even when we are resistant to walk through. Now, one October that we experienced two weeks ago was one of those moments, and it's one that none of us wanted that door to be open in front of us. This was not a natural disaster that we all experienced and are still processing. It was a human disaster. It's a human disaster when someone would be compelled to take the lives of 58 people by raining bullets down from above. That's a human disaster. It's a human disaster that a person would get to the place in their life to do that. It's a human disaster when families would be left today Without loved ones, it's a disaster that so many will experience physical scars for the rest of their lives. It's a disaster that so many will be left with emotional scars that they will have to carry. It's a disaster that so many of you sitting or watching this today will now feel a sense of vulnerability that you have never felt before. And it's at times like these, like Jonah, when we are tempted to run from God. As time stretches from that moment, we are more likely to be tempted to run from God, to start to process in a way that says, I don't want anything to do with that. And when that happens, the psalmist reminds us to run towards God. Here's what the psalmist says. It says, God is our refuge and our strength. He was even for Jonah, the runner. God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, the mountains quake with their surging. Though human disaster, disaster, natural disasters may come all around us, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. And then read this with me. The Lord Almighty is what? 
is with us. I came to Vegas in 1991. That's 26 years. I think that makes me a native, right? How many of you have been here longer than that? Raise your hand. A lot of you. I remember the first time my wife and I were ever in Vegas. We got a call from a church about coming here to do ministry, and we had never set foot in the city. And they got us a flight from Seattle where we were living at the time, and the flight landed at 1230 in the morning. And they put us in a car, and they drove us up the strip at 1230 in the morning on a Friday night. And they said, welcome to Vegas. And I remember sitting in the back of the car, holding my wife's hand, both of us staring out the window like, what is happening now? God, what are you up to? What are the doors that you are opening? Is Vegas a door that you would want this young couple, barely married a year, to step into? What are you putting in front of us? And that was a moment, looking back, as I was thinking about Vegas in this week, where it would have been much easier to run. There would have been a lot of safer places to go and do ministry. There would have been a lot of more convenient places to go and do ministry. More ordinary and predictable. But I'm so glad we didn't. Because after 26 years, we love this city like many of you do as well. And when we, when we, watch, when we watch the events the last week or so, our hearts break at a deeper level because this is our city, right? And when something happens from afar, your hearts break as you watch it on the news. But when something happens in a place that all of us can walk out of these doors and see, it makes us feel something very very different. As the week wore on, I've got to be honest, I went from sadness to fatigue, tempted to tap out, to anger and frustration. And I, and I thought about, okay, God, what doors are you opening? Because I'm not sure I want to walk through those. I mean, I heard what Shane said, but th that just seems like I just want to hunker down. I just, I, I want to get out of here. I need to move. I need to get somewhere else. I need to run. In those moments, we may feel helpless and hopeless. But what can we do when it seems like there is nothing we can change about what has happened? Because we can quickly move on, and that's us running like Jonah. But we can also have the courage to move forward in a way that brings comfort comfort. You see, Jonah had something to share with the people of Nineveh. They were a wicked people, but God had given Jonah grace and mercy and comfort and peace. And when God said, walk, walk to Nineveh, go through that door, he, he wasn't just saying, tell them how bad they are. But part of that message was, tell them how good I am. Tell them about the grace and the hope and the peace that they can have. Tell them about all of those things as well. Jonah had something to share. He had an open door that God had brought to him that he decided to run from. Guys, we have a door now that none of us wanted, that none of us expected, that none of, if we could go back and change it, we would. But there is now that moment where we need to decide, are we going to walk through the door? Are we going to bring this word? Comfort. Comfort. 
The Apostle Paul talks about this idea of comfort. And though we know Paul is a great apostle and a writer of much of our New Testament, when we first meet Paul, he's like Jonah. He is running from God. And the way Paul ran was violent. He didn't get on a boat. He started going after people who believed in Christ. He pursued the first believers. He imprisoned them. He killed some of them. But like so many runners, God kept pursuing Paul. And one day on an isolated road in the middle of nowhere, God gets Paul's attention. It's like when Jonah got swallowed by the whale, Paul saw a great light. And he stops running from away and starts running to, towards his God. This is a guy who hated Christians and he became a Christian. And we are here today, really largely even sitting in this room, because the Apostle Paul took the message of Christ to the rest of the world. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to this small church in Corinth who had experienced tragedy and suffering as well. And he tells them, listen, don't run, don't avoid this door, don't head to Tarshish. Instead of running, go through the door that God is opening and bring comfort. Because when we have received God's comfort in these moments, we are uniquely qualified to bring it to others. He says this to the church in Corinth. Very beginning of his letter to them. Praise be Grateful, praise, worship, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of what? All comfort. Now this is important because we learn later in this same book that Paul had what he called a thorn in the flesh. That he had something that made him very uncomfortable. That he had prayed that God would take away and God did not. And so this is a guy who understood what it was to be in the midst of circumstances that made him uncomfortable And yet he says that God is a God who brings comfort. And this word comfort is not just, you know, a sympathetic pat on the back. It's not a Hallmark card or let me read you a Bible verse. This word comfort that Paul uses here is empowering empathy. It's a comfort that brings courage and brings change. And Paul says, that is the kind of God that I serve. In the midst of all things that God has allowed to happen to me, I believe he is a God of comfort. And I, rem- and I continue to receive comfort from God even when my circumstances don't change. And when you find yourself wrestling with God in this, and we all do, the bad things that happen and this good God idea that we wrestle with, and you're tempted to just tap out to mentally, emotionally, and even spiritually get on a boat to Tarshish and walk away from what God wants to actually do. We need to know right now there is a way forward. There is a door in front of us that God wants us to walk through to bring compassion and comfort to others. This is what he goes on to say. He is the God of all comfort who does what? Comforts us in all of our troubles. Pause for just a second. When you're in trouble, do you pray for comfort? Probably not. Most of us pray for relief, right? Take this away from us. But here's what Paul tells us, that we can take comfort that God can change our circumstances and that in the circumstances that God chooses not to change, we can be confident that he will still comfort us. But here's the door that God's inviting us through today that you got to decide if you're going to get on the boat or you're going to go through the door. Here's the door he's, he's inviting us to. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Let's sit there for a second. So that we can. 
That little word is the door that you and I may have been looking for. It is the toward that we should be headed to when we are tempted to run away. That little word can means we are empowered to do something as individuals, as family, as a church community. That we're able to do something in the midst of the tragedy and chaos. He goes on to say this. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. It's a big deal. God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those who are in any sort of trouble. You say, I'd rather he change it than comfort me in the middle of it. That's not how it works. Here's the deal. Take this with us today. God comforts us so that we can comfort others. I don't know what you've felt over the last couple weeks. And even beyond what we've experienced, this has just been a season. Hurricanes, wildfires, and threats of war, shootings. I don't know about you, but I haven't felt all that comfortable over the last few months. But God is a God of comfort. And he comforts us so that we can comfort others. Verse 5 says this. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. In other words, we read in scripture that Jesus suffered the same way we did. He felt all of the same human things that we felt. We share in that. In other words, we have a, we have a unity in that. So also our comfort abounds through Christ. So our, our suffering parallels what Jesus experienced. And our capacity to comfort is, de- is really determined by the degree in which we have suffered. That's why if you've ever been in a dark place... And the people around you are doing the best to help you. And you're thinking, they just don't get it. You've been there? And then you meet someone who's been right where you currently are. And suddenly there's a level of understanding, of strength, and comfort that you would not get any other way. Last week, when everything started to happen, I immediately got on the phone with, with friends and pastors in Orlando, Florida. And in San Bernardino, California, who had experienced similar trauma in their communities why did I do that? There were a lot of people I could have called, but I did that because they understand, understood what we are and would be experiencing. Their ability to comfort and to guide us was greater because God had provided comfort to them in similar situations. I think we probably need to go home and read all these verses again in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're tempted to be a runner, you need to go home. And read these verses again. If you're, if you're tempted to say, I'm not feeling very comfortable, you need to go home and read these verses again. They may even allow you to find purpose for your own pain. Why didn't God do something in the midst of your suffering? Perhaps you now have something to share. But you have a choice, like Jonah. You can take what God has to share and head the other direction. You can look at it and say, it's too complicated, too messy, too soon, and start to run. Move away from the very place God intends you to go. One of the most difficult parts of being a pastor is when you're invited into people's pain and their heartache. I remember as a young pastor not knowing what to do. Sitting in waiting rooms and hospital rooms and people's houses and feeling like I should not be here. Because you're invited into those deepest, darkest moments and you don't know what to say. You're expected to know what to do and you don't know what to do. You're supposed to have answers to questions and the truth is you have all the same questions. There's no quick fix. I've been texting a little bit with Rick, Riley's dad, the gentleman Shane talked about last week, the young girl in our church who was 
um, shot during the festival and is recovering and is continuing in rehab and therapy. And I've been texting a little bit with him, and that's awesome. Thank you for your prayers. And honestly, I, 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 don't, I, I don't know what he, I don't know, never had anybody in the exact situation that he's in. So to be able to say, I understand, is really not true. But you know what I've been texting him? I've been texting him like dad to dad, right? Like, how you doing, dad? How you holding up? Because the only way I can relate to Rick in this moment is how I would feel if my 20-year-old daughter was sitting in the same place that his 18-year-old daughter is. And so I'm trying to comfort him in the only place that I'm qualified to comfort him. Dad to dad, father to father, how are you processing this thing? There's this thing called the fellowship of suffering. It's, it's the natural bond between those who have suffered deeply and similarly. You don't have to know their names or they know yours. There's just a bond. It's an auto bond. When a person who has suffered deeply meets someone who has also suffered, there's just a thing that happens that goes beyond anything else. You've seen this over and over again. Those who have suffered in the past are uniquely qualified to comfort those who are suffering now. When someone who has been there walks into a room to comfort someone who is still there, something very powerful happens. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And this is what God wants us to go towards. And for some of us, it may feel like Nineveh. It may feel scary. It may feel intimidating. It may feel uncomfortable. But here's the surprise. Being in the role of comforter brings life to you. When you've walked into a dark place and then you're able to comfort someone who is dealing with something similar, it is life-giving. There's a purpose for it. I was thinking of a few examples this week. I'm thinking around here. People I know. We have parents who have lost a child, the unthinkable, to cancer, who now reach out to other parents whose children are, are experiencing that same battle. Because they've suffered in the past, they're now qualified to bring comfort in the present. They are not running away, but running towards. We have people that are recovering from divorce who gather at our church. And this, these gatherings are led by men and women who have been through that. And they're still in that pain. And they bring it into the room each week and they let it be known that there is hope and there is light. They are not running away but running towards. I read about an online forum that someone started that I knew that is there to reach out to people who are dealing with the darkness of depression and anxiety. Part of their healing is providing the space for others to talk and process and find comfort because they understand. They're not running away. They're running towards. We have people that gather weekly here that are going through grief and loss. They've lost a loved one. They are uniquely qualified to bring comfort to those who have experienced loss. They're not running away. They're running toward. We need to be people who run toward. Run toward, not away. So over the next few weeks, as things settle... And you're tempted to run away from that neighbor who wants to have that conversation or that coworker who needs you to slip aside and to say a word of prayer for them. Or whatever else, God, whatever other doors God may open for you. And maybe the boat to Tarshish is sitting in the harbor of your heart and everything in you wants to get on it. Don't do it. God comforts us so that we can comfort others. If you're someone who's sitting here today or you're watching today and you're not sure about all this Jonah Jesus stuff or all this church stuff, I get it. We just want you to know that there's a bunch of people around you who take this stuff really seriously and we're like crazy. We believe 
to the point where there are people actually sitting here today that have been comforted by God through their circumstances. And they believe some of that purpose is so that they can comfort others. I'm not going to bury my sorrow or my pain. I'm not going to run. I'm going to leverage those sorrows, those experiences for the sake of other people who I'm uniquely qualified to step in and say, been there, done that, and there is hope. Hope is rising. And this will bring purpose to our pain and still life in our soul. Here's how Sam Shoemaker concluded his poem that I started earlier reading. He said this, maybe this resonates with you. He said, I admire the people who go way in to the door towards God, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help the people who have not yet even found the door or the people who want to run away again from God. You can go in too deeply and stay in too long and forget the people outside the door. As for me, I shall take my old accustomed place near enough to God to hear him and know he is there, but not so far from men as to not hear them and remember that they are there too. Where are they? Outside the door. Thousands of them, millions of them, but more important for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them whose hands I am intended to put on a latch so I shall stand by the door and wait for those who seek it. I'd rather be a doorkeeper so I stand by the door. Let's be doorkeepers of comfort, not runners. And let's see what God can do. Father, we just pray right now, in this moment, in this time, that you would make us a place of healing comfort. God, we have been blindsided by so much in the last few weeks. Many of us are fatigued. We're tired. We want to get into a boat and sleep and get away. But God, you have called us for a purpose. And I pray that throughout this room, whatever uniquely qualification, whatever unique qualifications we may have, those who are sitting, watching, hearing this right now, God, that whatever circumstances we may find ourselves in, where we can be a bringer of comfort, God, I pray that we would not step away from that responsibility, but we would step clearly, fully through that door, that we can lead others to a place of comfort and lead others to a place where they will find and discover you. God, that's the door that we want to keep. and We're determined to do it. God, help us as a church to continue to be that doorway for others. Help us as people, as families, to be that doorway. And God, we will. God, we will lead others towards you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.